This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. All right. Hello, everyone. My name is Sabrina Duick, and I am the host of this episode of The Law School Show. Today, I am joined by Jody Kaufman, a senior crown attorney for the Manitoba Justice Prosecution Service and also a previous professor of mine, and Hilary Tash, a staff attorney at Legal Aid Manitoba. Thank you both so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. So today we are going to discuss the youth criminal justice system and how the Crown works together with defense to ensure that justice continues to be administered therein. First, however, I would just like to talk a little bit about your personal experiences as lawyers. I guess I'll just hand over the virtual mic to the two of you and you can sort of just tell us what brought you into the legal justice system and more specifically what brought you to the Crown's office and to legal aid. Sure. Hillary, why don't you go first? Sure. Uh, so I started with legal aid uh, in my articling year in 2008, and uh, I was lucky to land in an office with mixed practice. So I got experience in family law, criminal law, child protection, and some administrative law that affects um, marginalized communities. Uh, through my career in 2011, I landed a really great opportunity to move full-time into the youth uh, defense um, side of legal aid. So I got to move into first a role as duty counsel, working out of the Manitoba Youth Center to assist kids in bail court, and then moving into a staff attorney position a year later um, to have a full caseload and, and work with kids. And I've been there ever since. And my name is Jody, and I, um, I articled the year after Hillary. So 2009 is when I started at Legal Aid as well. Um, and I worked in what was then known as the criminal law office. So I did exclusively criminal. I had, when I was in law school, I was one of the four uh, supervisors of the legal aid clinic that's run out of the law school itself. And I absolutely love the work and spent most of my third year doing that rather than going to class, but we won't talk about that. Um, and then I articled with legal aid and um, after about a year and a half, of as a staff lawyer. So when I finished articling, I became a staff lawyer there as well. And then about after a year and a half, I left there to go to the Crown's office. Um, when I was at Legal Aid, I did just like Hillary, a lot of youth work uh, defense. And then when I came to the Crown's office, um, I did general prosecutions for a while before moving into the youth unit as well. Um, and I've been doing that mostly ever since. And we've been lucky to have a number of cases together. Yes. Awesome. So so this kind of brings me very nicely into my next question. How often do the two of you cross paths? Oh, I would say every day. Every day, like. if not every other day. Before COVID, if I wasn't seeing you every day, Jody, I was at least touching a file that you were involved with, reading emails, sending you text messages, yeah. talking on the phone. So even if we didn't see each other face to face before yeah. the pandemic, um, you were definitely one of the people on my radar every single day of who I had to communicate with and, and get back to and, and touch base with. Um, since the pandemic, some of our files have slowed down, but still it's the same sort of pattern where we're responding to emails, making sure we get back to one another, making sure we cover the, the bases that we need to cover to keep 
our own side of the file moving. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was just going to add, like, we at our office, we have a group of nine crown attorneys in the youth unit. So we're a small unit. Mm. So all of the youth cases uh, in Winnipeg come through us. Um, and Hillary's part of a group of four lawyers in the legal aid youth unit. Um, and so while I do have private bar lawyers on a number of my files, all of the ones that run through the legal aid clinic, it's only through a group of four of them. So Hillary and I work together on a huge amount of files uh, over the years, especially because we've both been doing youth now for almost 10 years. So Yeah. Yeah. And with legal aid, we cover about um, before the pandemic, it's changed a little bit. Um, but before the pandemic, we covered about 75% of the legal aid cases that came through youth court or, or the total cases that came through youth court were handled by the four of us. Um, mm. So it really makes for a tight knit bar. And I find when you have a tight knit bar, it increases the um, respect and collegiality. And it also makes you very, very accountable to one another. For sure. uh, and that I think enhances our ability to negotiate fairly and, um, and in a really like open manner. That's awesome. Um, I appreciate that you're able to work together in this way, both within your offices as well as between them. Um, I just wanted to ask next if you can go into a little more detail on what each of your day-to-day -day looks like as Crown and Defense. I'm sure it looks a little different now that we're in a pandemic, so perhaps you can talk a little bit about both pre-pandemic as well as how everything is going currently. Jody, would you sort of agree that the first thing you kind of do is check who's been arrested? Is that the same at your office as mine? No. No? Okay. <laughs> no. Because for us, we have, um, we just have a crown who's the bail crown. And yeah. that, that crown will usually, whoever's scheduled to do bail court, that crown will usually reach out to whichever crown has been assigned to that uh, arrested individuals matters before. So um, I don't necessarily check who's been arrested, but there's a good chance I'll have an email in the morning saying, hey, Jody, this, you know, kid that you usually prosecute has been rearrested, yada, yada. So that's how, yeah. Yeah. From our office. So we start our day um, usually at home and this was pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. We generally get an email either from the Manitoba Youth Center or from Overnight Duty Council we find out who's been arrested overnight so that we can sort of start moving quickly. So mm -hmm. at my office, we have a group chat. We get our emails about who's been arrested at about 5 a.m. So whoever's the early bird usually starts texting and we figure out who we have to cover that day in bail court. Our office has file loads for everyone, but we also cover the duty council role at the youth center. Uh, so there's a, a court in Winnipeg. We have a court specifically for youths, uh, looking at bail applications and it's situated at the Manitoba Youth Center, which is um, convenient for the kids. They don't have to be transported. Mm -hmm. um, so we check our emails in the morning, see who's arrested. And uh, we have one person designated as duty counsel that day. And we start coordinating pretty early. Um, then all of us have control of our own schedules beyond the duty counsel schedules. So as lawyers, we should be looking two weeks out, one week out, uh, planning our days well in advance of like waking up that day. Mm -hmm. So it's not uncommon that I'll already have on my radar what I have to do that day. And what I'm dealing with is usually something that's a week or two weeks out if it's not in court that day. So it's not uncommon actually for me to get emails from Jody, which I so appreciate Jody, by the way, <laughs> where she says, hey, this case is on a week from now. What are we going to do? This case is on two weeks from now. We should talk about it. 
So a lot of it is dealing with the immediate, but also looking forward to that next hurdle, next hurdle, next hurdle to make sure you're on top of your practice. Uh, and then just juggling through those things throughout the day. What needs to be done now? What needs to be done to set up a week, two weeks down the line? Mm-hmm. And every day is different. Yeah. So, I mean, mine's pretty similar to Hillary in the sense that, um, you know, I have about 200 files um, active at all times. And that includes everything from, you know, a theft under to a murder. Um, But we also, so on top of our file load, we're the same as Hillary because we're a small unit. We also have to cover the rotational assignments. So that would be in custody uh, sentencings at the Manitoba Youth Centre, as well as bail court at the Youth Centre. And then we always have a designated crown attorney who's the duty crown to answer any questions and fill in other things. So with those rotational assignments, along with the caseload, you know, usually most of the day is spent answering emails, going to court appearances, um, prepping for upcoming hearings. So um, every day is very similar, but also they're all very, very different, if that makes sense in any way. Um, But yeah, there's a lot of touching base with defense every day about files that are coming up, uh, just like Hillary said, in the immediate, but also, you know, next week we have this, is there a way we can resolve it? Or what are we planning on doing? And that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. So, And some days just go haywire. Like there Mm -hmm. are days where we get news that um, for defense that like, you need to drop what you're doing. If you can, you're needed down at the police station to sit in on a six to 12 hour interrogation. There goes your whole day um, or your whole night. And there are just, so as predictable as our job is, like Jody says, like our days feel the same, but then these individual cases can really, really um, require, like things can, can, things can really flare up at times mm-hmm. and, and you can end up with a very hectic day without expecting it. And that's just because no one can predict, you know, when something is going to go wrong and someone gets arrested for something big or um or if there's a kid that comes into custody that really needs that extra help and extra energy. Uh, and, and Crown and Defense both do that. Like there are days when you could be in bail court and things might be going smoothly. And there are days, Jody, you've probably had these days where you have a parent crying or a victim or this or that. And it, and it all of a sudden a day just explodes into something that was a lot more than what you expected when you woke up. Definitely. Definitely. And, and on top of that, like, because we're very sort of, I don't want to say fluid in our relationship and roles, but we work very collaboratively together. So there are a lot of high risk youth, unfortunately, in this province that come back into custody over and over and over again. And we become very invested, both the Crown and Defence become very invested in those files. So if one, and Hillary and I have had a number of them over the years. So if one of those kids comes in, Hillary and I will spend a chunk of that day figuring out what we can do quickly because those, as Hillary says, we often will have those very vulnerable, high risk, high mental health crisis cases that cause us to put everything else on the back burner and us to look what can get done immediately on that. So yeah, I completely agree with what you say about how some days just get flipped. Yeah, especially the cases where we know kind of in our hearts and in our brains that the jail isn't the best option for mm-hmm. them. And so we there's really that sense of urgency where we need to engage the other resources in the community because the jail is always open for kids. And 
if a kid is slipping through the cracks, the most likely place they're going to end up is the jail. Right. So if we can identify, okay, is this a criminal issue right now? Is this a mental health issue? Is this a child welfare issue? If we can work together and identify where it needs to go, and if we see that it's not a criminogenic kind of issue, mm-hmm. we move extra fast to make sure we engage the proper resources. Um, and I've and I've always appreciated how Jody and the other members of the office are really able to quickly discern. Now, sometimes it overlaps, and that's when we need to, you know, obviously think about it differently. But when it's clear that it's like, hey, Jody, those cases where it's like a mental health case or a child welfare failure. We try to hold those systems to account so that a kid doesn't languish in custody. Right. And Crowns are a big partner in that. Like, Crowns help make that happen. Yeah. And it's unfortunate because in the youth world, far more than any other area of the law, that's when you see this um, interaction between social welfare and social measures and custody. And oftentimes, like Hillary says, the jail is open to everybody. And unfortunately, we have a lot of kids that are in care and their caregivers are at a loss of what to do because they are not parents. They are people who are just being paid minimum wage to run a group home or whatever the case may be. And they're not necessarily trained with how to deal with youth who come from backgrounds full of trauma and substance abuse and mental illness. Um, And so they're often quick to turn to the jails as a means of sort of getting a timeout or getting a space to breathe and figure out some clarity. And and that's not right. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a lot of times where we have youth that are brought in for reasons that should not be um, criminalized. um, But, but the workers are at a loss as to what else there is that they can do. Um, So those are exactly what Hillary's talking about. And we've had way too many of those over the years where Mm -hmm. if there was an alternative to custody, but also perhaps not returning that youth to the placement, then we would be a lot better off. And and unfortunately, one of the biggest issues with all of that stems from the fact that most of the kids, a high, high percentage of the kids that we deal with in the criminal justice system are kids in care who do not have parents raising them. And, and, and we see issues that where a parent, like I always try to run it through the lens of, would a parent phone the police for what just happened? Yeah. Um, would a parent insist that they spend the night in jail for what just happened? Yeah. And I do that as well on my end. Yeah, I would say that is, that is a, a question we both ask almost immediately. Yeah, so you could have a kid who's basically, and again, remember, we're dealing with kids that come from really traumatic backgrounds that have their own issues and diagnoses, um, perhaps are not, um, you know, they have cognitive issues, they have behavioral issues, they have trauma, all those things. And, you know, they have times where they can't regulate their behavior. And let's say they have a, a temper tantrum at the house, at the group home, and they throw, you know, they kick a wall and they cause a hole in the wall. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of times we've had kids brought into custody for a mischief charge. Whereas I can tell you, if my kid, um, and I have two of them, kicked a hole in my wall, I wouldn't be calling the police, but I would be parenting them and punishing mm-hmm. them as a mom. But because these youth mm-hmm. don't have that, they get criminalized. And so there have been many charges that I, as a Crown Attorney, have stayed over the years or thrown out yeah. because 
it should have been something that was dealt, had they not been in care, like Hillary said, had they not been a child in care, likely no charges would have resulted. Yeah. We often have like a running list in all of our minds of these, of these, um, in particular, assault with a weapon. And assault with a weapon can be, it can be a very, very serious charge, but it can also be throwing a cup, throwing a juice box, throwing a shoe, throwing a hairbrush. And it's a serious charge. Mm -hmm. If you have an assault with a weapon on your record, that's a very serious charge to have show up and there's no context. But what we see is a lot of these kids coming in with, okay, they're charged with assault with a weapon. Well, what's the weapon? Margarine container? Come on. Right? Um, and, and what's great is that the, all of us are very quick at acknowledging the difference between the spectrum of seriousness of those charges, even though it's all the same name. The spectrum of seriousness is very, very different. For sure. But it's over across the board, we see those charges coming out of, of group homes. Yeah. Right. So on that note, then, I am wondering if you can discuss a little more the reasons behind many of these young people unfortunately finding themselves involved with the youth criminal justice system. That one I think is too tough to say because we only see a segment of them. It would be so interesting Mm -hmm. to see how many kids in child and family services end up in trouble with the law. I don't think we can know that from our perspective, but we know from our perspective that of the kids that end up in trouble with the law, I would say 75, 80, 90% of them are wards of CFS. Jody, would you agree with that? Yeah, I would say north of 75 for Mm -hmm. sure. Percent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I know there are statistics. I know, um, I know Manitoba Advocate did statistics um, about how many kids are in care in the province and how many of those end up finding themselves involved with the justice system. But I don't know what the number is. But I think it's also important to note that the percentage that Hillary and I end up seeing are only those that end up getting um, charges laid. So for example, um, the, the police, if they're, if police are called to a group home for, you know, a youth who's, you know, breaking a wall or something like that, the police also have the discretion to what they call divert it. So a police can give them a warning. They can, you know, make them go out and do some community service work and all that stuff. There's, there's layers to it. So that might be a case that a youth becomes involved with the justice system because they're now answering to police officers and what's required of them, but that Hillary and I will never see because if the youth does what the officer asks them to do as sort of a sanction or a punishment and they complete that, then that matter will never come to Hillary and I's attention. That's what we call pre-charge diversion, right? Right. And then there's also a whole other layer of it that come to my office and I send off to diversion or I don't lay charges and get them to go do diversion or I'll send something called a crown caution where I warn the kid, listen, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt here. I'm not going to lay charges, but next time you come to my attention, I might. All of those files are also diverted and never get to the point where Hillary would see them on her end. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the police have, have discretion, then the Crown has discretion, then it gets to the point where there might need to be a defense lawyer involved. We're talking about a lot of layers. Yeah, and even once a defense lawyer is involved, we still have more diversion options after that. Right. If I meet a kid and assess it and say, you know what, this kid's personal circumstances are such that I think that they would really benefit from diversion and that they would 
be able to do this program and essentially um, have it as a meaningful consequence for their actions and leave our system relatively unscathed without a criminal record, etc. Um, and so even though Jody may have looked at that before and said, okay, this is not where I'm going to exercise my discretion. After a lawyer gets involved, there might be something that maybe she just doesn't know because she doesn't have the benefit of sitting down and talking with the kid. I do. If I find that there's something that's um, like a valid reason to, to revisit that diversion issue, we divert a lot of kids at that point as well. Yeah. Just after counsel's been appointed. Yeah, and then there's also files as well that will come to my desk long before. It takes a little longer for a defense lawyer to get assigned. Mm -hmm. As soon as a charge is laid, a Crown attorney is assigned. But sometimes because of legal aid and the processes, the administrative processes that have to be conducted, it takes a little longer for a defense lawyer. Yeah. So all have already looked at a file and decided that I'm going to divert it, but I want the kid to plead guilty and then divert it. And yeah. then if they complete diversion, I'll stay the charges. Or because um, it's a youth and not an adult and they need that extra layer of assistance, I'll wait for the, the defense lawyer to get assigned and then divert it. Yeah. Um, so we look at it sometimes on our end before defense does, but on the same, but on the flip side, um, exactly like what Hillary says, sometimes she'll say to me, listen, Jody, I know on paper it looks bad. And I know, you know, this kid has had the benefit of diversion before, but here's what you need to know about what happened here. Here's what you need to know about the diagnoses that this youth has, that the challenges they face and whatever, and give me a fuller picture because sometimes all I have is an arrest report. So I don't know anything about the kid. So she provides that context to me to then look at a file more holistically and say, yeah, you're right, Hillary. I, I think this is appropriate for diversion or for a discharge or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, this is where I think when we talk about, um, like, the importance of GLADU, uh, it's not just academic and it's not just at sentencing. Because often when I sit down and chat with my kids, if they are in care, um, a lot of them are also of an Indigenous background and a lot of them are in care because of what Jody had mentioned earlier in our conversation, trauma, um, difficult relationships with violence often too, right? Like a lot of these kids have either been victims of, of violence or have witnessed violence or have seen violence as um, a coping mechanism or a mm -hmm. uh, dispute resolution tool throughout their lives. And so when you think about um, a gladu factor that a child may have, being in care is one of them. Right. And also... Um, having that, having that experience of, of, um, difficult issues at home before coming into care, uh, these kids do struggle with how, how do we best move forward? How do we, um, live peaceably? How do we deal with the fact that we've, um, dealt with violence in the past? So often what I bring to Jody when I'm looking at a file fresh could be the very same things that I would be bringing information that I would want to bring to a judge on sentencing. And if we can kind of like get that nailed down in advance, we can usually do, um, we can we can have sort of a more meaningful intervention at an early stage that will actually help kids get out of the system. I think the less time they spend in custody, the less court dates they have, the less um, like really formal and strict interventions that they have with the court, I think the better chances of success they have. And that diversion, if they can do it, most of my diversion kids don't come back. And I think that if they were roped further and further and further into the system, that recidivism rate just goes up and up and up. 
What do you think, Jody? The antecedents are. What's common antecedents that you see Jody going into this? Was is is the question that you want answered? Um, what is it that's causing youth to become involved in the system, or what is it that causes them to become reinvolved once they're in? Um, involved generally, um, just kind of what brings them into it. But if you want, you can also discuss their their recidivism. Well, I, the reason I ask that is just because they're two different. There are two different answers to me. I mean, what brings the youth into the justice system in the first place is exactly what we've sort of already touched on. Um, we have a high proportion of youth in care. They're in care usually for a number of reasons. And Hillary mentioned GLADU, and I don't know if your listeners understand what that means. Um, but it's something that we in the justice system have to take into account. Uh, we have to recognize um, the years of colonialism that Indigenous people have been put through and, and take that into account when looking at their backgrounds and histories. And so we often have a lot of Indigenous people who, um, due to the trauma of, of what, what happened in the 60s and, and residential schools and all that, that filtered down through generations. And so there's a lot of intergenerational domestic violence, substance abuse, um, internal sexual abuse as well. Um, a lot of young, in, young indigenous people not, not learning how to properly parent because they didn't have that themselves because their parents were still living the effects of what had happened to them. And so all of that, I mean, is, is, is what led to a high proportion of these young people being brought into care. Mm -hmm. um, they weren't, they didn't have parents around. Their parents struggled with substance abuse and were victims of sexual trauma, physical trauma, emotional trauma. Um, a lot of them had attachment issues because they had been scooped or placed into other um, homes to be raised. And because of that, they, they couldn't form that familial uh, attachment. Um, so all of those things are why the youth come into care and oftentimes care is is a difficult place for youth to be raised it's not their family they're being raised among strangers uh the caregivers are strangers the youth the other youth that are being uh housed in those facilities are also strangers to them and so often um you know they'll turn to crime or or react with uh, violence to situations and so um all of those things that we talked about now the reason I asked what, what exactly the question was is because once they're in the system from the beginning, whatever their first charge is, we as a system um, are told by the Youth Criminal Justice Act that we have to use jail as the last option. And oftentimes it's still the first option. If somebody comes in and they've shot someone or they have seriously harmed someone or a case like that, then absolutely custody is, is going to happen likely. But for a lot of our youth, like we talked about, who throw a juice box or kick a hole in the wall or, you know, steal a candy bar from a 7-Eleven because they don't have the money to pay for any food and they're hungry. All of those kids end up getting being placed on a, a number of conditions. And I think the reliance on conditions that we place on kids causes a lot of them to breach um, and that I think is the highest, I think there was a, a study done and I think administrative offenses, which is breaches of court orders is one of the highest, um, recorded offenses as to why individuals come back into custody. 
We got, that, that report came out around 2016-17, uh, I think, in that window. Yeah, I was and, say and what it's was, a couple of years. Yeah, what was great was I think both your office and my office, um, we really looked closely at that, and, and that has been a discussion that's been ongoing since. I do think that's gotten better. Um, yes, I agree. I, I think that's gotten much better. Jody, would you agree that... I always kind of think of it this way, that in the States, they always talked about, they always talk about the school to prison pipeline. And while that exists to some extent in Canada, you know, particularly um, kids, if they get in trouble at school, um, the presence of some, some tactics of resource officers, however that might play out, um, it could lead you into um, a custodial setting. But I think in Canada, what we see more so is the CFS to prison pipeline. Um, And also I was going to say another thing that I think kids in care tend to do is seek out family, Um, seek out kind of a family environment. And unfortunately, at least in the city of Winnipeg, um, one of the easiest places to find a sort of landing spot and a guaranteed, um, you know, meal of craft dinner or pizza is in a gang house. Um, Mm. A lot of kids are recruited at a very young age, eight, nine, 10 years old, with craft dinner, with pizza, with friendship, with an offer of family. I have a lot of clients who talk about street moms and street family. And um, it really makes me think that if these kids had more access to um, love and bonding, and if they knew more about their origins, if they knew more about their story, if they were able to maintain that family connection, a lot of our high, high risk kids who are, like Jody says, involved with gangs, guns, they're the ones getting custodial sentences. They're getting, they're going to jail. Uh, if they had had an opportunity to have a family setting somewhere other than a gang, I can't help but think how much better their lives would be and how much our, safer our communities would be too. Yeah, but then the other thing, just on the flip side of that, and I completely agree with that, mm-hmm. it's, it's, heartbreaking how many of our youth likely became involved in the justice system because they didn't have that proper mom and dad or mom and whoever grandma or whoever raising them from the start they were they were brought into the child welfare system at a very early stage and um the other thing about that is that we have had a heartbreaking, and I keep saying the word heartbreaking, but it really, really is, even as somebody who's a prosecutor, but we have had many times, um, unfortunately, a parent, a biological parent being involved in crime with that youth. Mm -hmm. So they'll be a co-accused on a robbery, or they will have, you know, um, sent that youth out to go collect a drug debt or whatever, because oftentimes these gangs are also intergenerational. Um, and so what happens is the youth gets placed on court orders not to have contact with that parent. And from a youth perspective, they can't understand why CFS or the government would say, don't call, don't talk to your mom or dad. Yeah. They run away from group homes and get charged with breaching their reside conditions or whatever, just because they're trying to run back and go be with their parents. And it's really sad because they can't understand why there would be an order in place to prevent them from seeking out their own family. Mm-hmm. But on the other side, the purpose of that is to keep them away from negative influences. And it's this very, very hard um, balancing act um, where you want to keep a youth 
connected to family, that's extremely important, especially for youth um, to have that connection. Um, while at the same time, trying to keep them away from the negative influences that unfortunately some of the families have brought into that youth's life. And on that point, Jody, I would say that um, this is where I kind of get a little bit um, <laughs> frustrated when other lawyers that aren't always in the youth system will say about the youth system, oh, what? It's youth court. They're going to just get probation. They're just going to get probation. But you can see how much work we put in to making sure we craft probation orders that will actually help this young person get out before they turn 18. We urgently want them to get out before 18. Everyone involved, everyone involved, the judge, the crown, the probation officers, the defense lawyers, we work so hard to tailor those probation conditions so that if in an individual case where it comes up, like Jody says, that the family is really the one dragging them down, as heartbreaking as it is, sometimes that has to happen. Um, it's so whenever anyone says youth law is easy, it's not. And, and we become very emotionally invested in our clients. And I know that we're supposed to have um, some, you know, professional divide and professional boundaries. And we do maintain that. But at the end of the day, you're also, we're sometimes um, some of the only consistent advocates that these kids have. Uh, Jody and I have both had files where we've been involved in their case longer than their social workers, longer than their caregivers, longer than their foster parents, longer than, you know, we can see them from 12 to 18. And in that period of time, they may go through 10 to 20 different homes. They may go through five different social workers. So the consistent advocates in their life are their defense lawyer and at times their crown, because a lot of the crowns, when they see a young person making efforts, but slipping through the systems or not having resources, um, appropriate resources given to them, the Crowns advocate just as hard as the defense lawyers. Yeah, it's actually sad as a Crown attorney. Um, I have been the listed emergency contact on far too many youths who've come into the youth center. Mm -hmm. When they come into the youth center, they have to <clears throat> provide an emergency contact name and number of somebody. And uh, it's, so sad. It's such a sad commentary when the crown attorney, the one who's prosecuting them, um, becomes that emergency contact because mm -hmm. even sometimes the defense lawyers change. Mm -hmm. And so there have been times where I have been the only consistent person in that person's life. Yeah. And, uh, and they put me as the contact. Now that, if that doesn't speak volumes of how sad things can be, um, I don't know what can. Yeah, consistency and understanding of origins, it really, it's, it's, it's something that these kids need. And if, I think if we as a system, looking outside the justice system, if we as an entire wraparound system of people that assist these kids, if we could acknowledge um, how much could be prevented just with appropriate funding for, for these kids mm -hmm. um, before they get to our justice system, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have this. They, they would be doing a lot better. Right. So we've kind of gone down a rabbit hole into like the whole <laughs> social antecedents. And do you want us to pull it back or do you have any like questions that come out of that or, or refocusing on some of the more basic stuff or? Yeah, absolutely. I would love to go a little bit more into how important it is to divert these young people away from the criminal justice system, as well as what some of these diversion programs might actually look like. Sure. 
So I'm just going to talk about diversion a little bit, um, just from a defense perspective. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think it's our obligation as defense lawyers to always be seeking out opportunities to divert files. And under the YCGA, diversion is not a, um, a gift or a favor or, you know, an exception. It's actually our starting point for all youth cases. Now, it's a starting point that obviously can be quickly um, uh, ruled out when there's serious violence, when there's uh, weapons, etc. And, and Jody is the one to make the call on that. But as defense lawyers, our first step for advocacy, um, if we're looking at a, a case, is to say, okay, YCGA says every young person coming before the court should have an opportunity, if it's appropriate, to have their matter diverted. Uh, and I think that's something that when lawyers are only dabbling in youth court, they forget about. So um, giving a kid an opportunity to come out of this justice system without a criminal record, without sort of the, I think it's also something that they can be proud of. They can say, I was able to do this community service work. I did this program. I learned this from from it. This is what I can take away from it. And I never want to be involved in criminal justice system again. That for us is a major success for everyone involved. Um, but yeah, I think lawyers need to be looking at every single youth file with an eye to diversion before before anything else. Jody, you talked a bit about diversion, but I'll let you. Yeah, I mean, I I don't really have much more to add. Like I say, we have we get um, alerted by police uh, most of the time when they've come across the situation, you know, an officer can walk um, up to a 7-Eleven and see a youth who has a, a pocket knife on them or something, which, you know, they could charge with carry concealed weapon. They say, listen, kid, give me the weapon, give me the knife and, and on you go. Mm-hmm. So those types of uh, police diversion files, like we, we usually get alerted to, but not always. Um, and then we also have a, a unit in our office where our paralegals um, review any incoming files and they will automatically look at those youth files for, with an eye to diversion. So sometimes the file never even makes its way upstairs to me. They'll see uh, a youth, no record, uh, stole a lipstick. And I always use the example of Zellers, which I know is super dated and my classes at U of M always laugh at me, but uh, so, you know, from Superstore. Um, and then those paralegals will automatically divert it themselves without even mm. asking really uh, Crown um, for their opinion because they have a certain set of criteria. If they're not sure what to do, then it makes its way up to our office and then we look at it with an eye to diversion. So there's usually a bunch of layers um, already before it even gets to uh, defense in some aspects. But like Hillary said, we are asked by the Criminal Justice Act to always look at a file with an eye to diversion at the outset. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes it's not appropriate, but sometimes it is. And oftentimes there will be a file that I look at that I don't think is appropriate for diversion at all. And then, like we talked about before, I'll speak with the defense lawyer, get a much better understanding of what's going on, the mental health crisis that the youth was going through at the time, um, you know, the personal circumstances, what was going on, and it'll provide some context for me to then decide maybe I should reconsider and send it to diversion. Mm-hmm. Did that answer the question? Oh, yeah, for sure. That answered it really well, actually. So now I'm just wondering if you can talk a little more about how the two of you and more generally how prosecutors and defense attorneys work together within the youth criminal justice system to ensure that justice continues to be administered in the best way possible. 
Um, well, I can say that, you know, I can't really speak for how other crowns approach their files, especially crowns in other units. Um, I think it's important to start off the answer to that question just saying that I think the youth world is completely different and is sort of set apart from the adult world. Now, don't get me wrong, I still have a ton of adult files that I, I approach in the same way that I approach my youth, but I think it's important to just sort of understand that that the youth world is a very small bar. Um, there's a lot of lawyers that don't understand the Youth Criminal Justice Act and don't want to understand it. And there's uh, a group of us that that's what we specialize in. So because of that, we end up having almost all of our files, um, all of the files that I prosecute end up having a very select group of defense lawyers that will be assigned to it. So I have worked with this group of individuals for years now. Hillary and I, as I said, for 10 years now have worked together. So we have um, a rhythm that may not necessarily be what another crown who's new to my unit or a new defense lawyer who's new to your unit, her unit may have. Um, but the both of us are very senior. And so we've done this for a long time and, and sort of know how to weed through a file and get to what needs to be dealt with. Mm -hmm. um, Hillary and I, um, I think, as she said at the beginning, I think a huge part of it is a level of respect. I have huge amount of respect for Hillary. I think she is an excellent advocate for her youth. I think that um, she's one of the best. And so when I work with her, um, I don't, I don't get defensive. I don't feel like I need to, um, you know, sort of spend my time justifying my position because I feel like she understands where I'm coming from and I understand where she's coming from. And, and we just, we have a very collegial symbiotic relationship. Again, I can't speak to how some other people work on a file together, but I think that the fact that both of us are passionate about what we do I think the fact that we've done it for a very long time and I think the fact that we sort of respect each other all comes into play. I don't, I don't really know if there's anything else. Hillary, you jump in now. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. So originally we, our question was, can we redo the question one more time? How do we work together? Right. Um, yes. Yeah. Okay. So I would say, I would just start out by saying that, um, when you do have a tight-knit group of lawyers like this, um, like our, our youth um, bar, um, first and foremost, it's, it's about trust and it's about respect. And it sometimes takes people off guard when they come into the, unit, into the units, both on defense and crown side, um, that, that they maybe are, are negotiating or, or approaching files in a way that are closer to um, adult world. And, and, and don't get me wrong, there's a time and a place for us to approach our files that way, but we kind of tip one another off for it to be like, I'm setting this trial, this is how I'm setting it, these are the legal issues, no, there's no ground for resolution, and we don't take that personally because that's part of our job as well. And everyone understands that when we're switching into um, zealous advocacy mode, it's not an attack on each other in any way, in any way whatsoever. Um, so when new lawyers come into our, our, our environment, I think it sometimes takes them a period of time to adjust to the fact that I'm going to listen to you and, and I'm hoping that you're going to listen to me and I'm hoping that you're going to take what I hear and use it productively and in a fair way that is in line with the spirit of the YCGA 
that you're not going to twist it or turn it on me or use it against me in some way, um, because that's a quick way to erode trust between counsel. It's permissible, but it's just a quick way to erode trust. Um, so I also like what Jody said about problem solving, that we're kind of realizing that for many of these issues, because the YCJ has us look at, yes, the individual files, yes, the legal issues, but it also has us look to what's in the best interest of society for the long-term protection of the public, how do we weigh in um, the young person's individual needs, how do we take in their, how do we um, sort of account for their diminished moral blameworthiness, and how can we solve this problem in a way that balances all of these competing factors? It means that we have to talk more. It means that we often have to be innovative. And working together over the years, it also kind of becomes a bit intuitive because we can say, hey, remember what we did on that file a few years ago where they didn't do diversion formally because they couldn't handle it because of their mental health or because of their cognitive ability, but instead they painted a fence? Can we do that? And we can be like, yeah, paint a fence. Okay. Like that's, we'll, and we'll be able to say that with, you know, I won't name anyone, but we'll be able to just say, can we do what we did with John Doe? And Jody will say, of course, because we're able to follow each other's intuitions with these files because we see these parallels over and over again. And if we see success with one kid, may have been five, six years ago, but if we see something similar come across our desk, we can immediately reuse some of those tools. One of the things that I've really liked about working with Jody is um, one of the things that we've been able to do together is be a bit innovative and try to adapt some programming for youth. So for instance, in Manitoba, we have a mental health court for adults, mm -hmm. and it's an amazing program. But unfortunately, we don't have that resource for kids. But there are times when a case comes across our desk that just cries out for a similar intervention. So we make one up. We do it. We get a special sitting in front of a judge. And before anybody comes in, we tell the judge, Your Honor, Today, we'd like to hold court in a way that is similar to the adult mental health court. We will call it a sentencing conference or a, um, a resolution conference because we are allowed those under the YCGA. But we want your honor to join us in approaching this like a mental health court case. We want to do a check-in today where we'll talk about how the kid's doing. We want to do a check-in in a month. We want to do a check-in in three months. We want to have a total of four check-ins ultimately with a stay of proceedings if things go well. And we can be dynamic and innovative on the spot because we trust that we're going to follow through with that plan. The judges look to us and know that we've talked about it and we know that this is the right approach for the case. And we've seen really good results um, that come out of that collaboration. It's um, Those, I think, are the most rewarding cases we've had. Hey, Jody. Yeah, and and just on that point, um, yes, we have been very creative, and the the Youth Criminal Justice Act allows us to be a little bit more creative than it does in the adult world because the whole essence of youth justice is about, like Hillary said, long term protection of the public, but also the best interests of the youth. Um, and so, really, if we can come up with something that's meaningful to that youth that will also tick the other boxes, then we'll do it. And like Hillary mentioned about a painting of offense. We did that with a youth years ago who was extremely cognitively compromised, um, but it was very meaningful to him to have to repay what he did to society by painting the fence at his group home. Yeah, and he couldn't have handled a formal diversion 
he couldn't have he couldn't have handled going through the hoops of a formal diversion, meeting new people, kind of fitting into right. that program. It would have been really hard for him. Um, and we figured that out, I think, somehow. I don't remember how we figured that out. I think it was talking with the caregivers. Because because we involve we involve all of the people in the like yeah. with youth justice, we involve the whole team. Mm-hmm. These kids that come before the justice system have teams. They have social workers, they have um mentors, they have action therapists, they have teachers, they have all these people. Um, and so this one particularly, his group home worker said, you know, I think some chores around the house. And when we came up with painting the fence, this youth took it so seriously and it was very meaningful to him. He took it to heart. He spent every day out there a couple of hours and was so proud of himself. And Hillary and I have never heard from that guy since because it was meaningful to him. Whereas the average person would look at it and say, painting a fence, who cares? Mm-hmm. To him, that was more meaningful than sending him to jail or making him, you know, yep. uh, pay a fine or whatever other choices we have. And you know, if they don't have a team around them, um, we help build it often. Like we've used our, I'm going to say Rolodex, mental Rolodex. That's another thing that's dating us. Let's say our contact <laughs> anymore um so we use our contacts our networks and our experience that if a young person doesn't have a team around them um we can help build it right we can help because every youth should yeah 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 and the other thing the other piece is when we when hillary was talking about how um i mean on that case specifically the paint fencer but then also all the other cases we've done creative things with when we go in and we tell the judge this is how we're gonna do it and we just want to meet with you know we want the kid to come back before you hillary and i have a case going on right now yep just like this the judges that sit in youth court play a very important role as well and so while we talk about how it's a small youth bar and, and you know, those of us that are in it are usually um, have a very different mindset than other lawyers and we look at things differently. The group of judges that sits in youth court are also extremely experienced and it's a small group of judges that will come to youth court. Once in a while, we'll get a judge that hasn't appeared in youth court in a long time, but there's a small group of them that are, are sort of the main players when it comes to youth court and they have the same mindset as us in terms of how to approach a youth file, what what can we do that's best. So when we first came up with this file years ago um, to have this kid paint the fence, it was a little bit unheard of then, but the judge was on board. And ever since then, a group of the judges now are on board and we do it on a few files, even though technically we don't have a mental health court for you. Mm-hmm. So the judges also are very receptive to creativity and collaboration. Um, yeah. So our judges it, it, it's are just a, a good group. Yeah, our judges have been amazing. And I can say that like, we have judges that are hard on crown. We have judges that are hard on defense. I don't even care if they are getting it. If they are getting the YCJ, I don't even care if they don't give me what I'm asking for. As long as, you know, I, I trust that what they're going to do Maybe it's not my client's position. Maybe it's not Jody's position on that one. But I trust what they're going to do is going to be thoughtful and it's going to be grounded in the YCGA principles and it'll probably work. And if it doesn't, they'll be open to new ideas and new suggestions from us. Um, We really are lucky to practice in the area that we're in. 
we get to be trial lawyers. We get to be charter, you know, we get to bring charter motions. We get to do all this, but then we have this other part of our, our cases, um, and other part of our, uh, day to day that is just really fulfilling and just a good group of people. But yes, the judges are a major part on this. Um, and, and Jody, would you say that the judges, well, I think, a, I think there was lots of players behind the FASD project, but the judges, our youth court judges were really spearheading that they were seeing that, um, an FASD specific court was really an important thing. And that's something we're lucky to have in, in Winnipeg. Um, but it's it it's all coming out of the, the judges see that there's there's problems or that there's challenges or that there's areas for innovation, and they are often the first to be on board when we bring it up. Yeah, just just on the FASD thing, I'm the I'm the designated crown for youth FASD court, and so I was part of the preliminary stages when the when it was coming to a head when they wanted to implement that as a court and we needed input as to how it should look and how it would function and what it meant. Um, And we're very, very lucky as the only place um, to have an FASD court for adults and youth um, in Canada. And um, for, for the youth side of things, mostly um, it's been a huge help because it opens a whole way of looking at cases, a whole different way of approaching cases, but also provides these individuals a host of resources and supports that they would not otherwise receive. Mm -hmm. So sometimes, although it's never what you want for someone, sometimes being involved in the justice system ends up allowing a youth or an adult to access things that they wouldn't otherwise be able to. I uh, another thing, just, um, I don't know if we're going down a, a tangent, you don't want us to Sabrina. So just stop me if you want me to, but one other thing about the youth, Ju- uh, criminal justice act that is, is unique to youth is we have something called an ERC sentence. And what that is, is an intensive rehabilitative sentence where youth are provided, um, a hundred thousand dollars from the federal government and more if needed on the back end. Um, and it allows them, it's, it's a very narrow criteria for eligibility, but if a youth fits the eligibility, um, they get open to a whole host of resources and supports and programming and therapy and um, all of these different layers that a youth might not otherwise receive. I can tell you I've resolved a number of files for an ERC sentence because it's in everybody's best interest. It's in the youth's best interest for sure, but it's also in society's best interest that if we can put into place, um, you know, if this individual doesn't respond to talk therapy, maybe they'd respond to equine therapy. If this individual, you know, has never really been given the chance to thrive in school, ERCs will help pay for university in some circumstances. Those types of things, it opens a door that even though they're being sanctioned and they're being, you know, given a sentence from the courts, sometimes being involved in the justice system opens a door that will allow them to succeed and thrive in a way that had they not come under our attention, they would never be able to access. Yeah. And just a point on IRCs is that I think it's important to appreciate that IRCs, while it seems like a lot of money for taxpayers, while that seems like a lot of, of um, of expense, I think it's really important for people to understand that the youths that qualify for that are youths that have very, very, very serious charges. These are youths that otherwise would be a significant danger to the community. 
they're the ones that if we can intervene at 15, 16, 17 years old, it could save lives later um, because mm-hmm. they're not going to spend the rest of their lives in jail. They are going to have to reintegrate into society at some point. And as a society, we want to do that right. So these are sentences that are earmarked for youths that have sadly taken a life or have been consistently um, violent in a really serious way and also are saddled with a disability of some sort. So uh, where where we can intervene with a young person who's gone so, so far off the path at such an early age, but has these other factors such as disability or mental health or um, serious medical issues. Whereas if we can intervene and give them the tools to get those medical issues under control, get stabilized, they often spend most, if not all, of the time in their irk sentence in custody or in a highly supervised area um, or environment, sorry. If we can intervene at that point, we can literally save lives because these are kids who, unfortunately, at a very young age, have committed serious, serious violence against the community. So when we look about when we look at irks, a lot of criticism comes out and saying, oh, that's a very hefty price tag. But mm-hmm. You know, what's the cost on the other end? Um, we need to bring these these most violent kids, these most damaged kids, and often they're saddled with disability. We need to bring them back into the fold somehow, and that takes resources. And the ERCS program is one of the best ways to do that. It also is um, one of the requirements for ERCS is that they really show significant buy-in, that they want to do the program, that they want to change, uh, that they want to work with a team. It's a it's an excellent option yeah, for our, and it's, our most uh, tough cases. It sounds like a lot of money, but but very few of them end up qualifying for it. Because like Hillary mm-hmm. said, you have to have very specific. There's only four charges under the criminal code that count. And they have to have a diagnosed um, disability. And so without you have to have both of those. And without that, you don't qualify no matter what. Um, but the other thing, just in terms of cost, like Hillary says... Not only does it help us in terms of the fact that um, we're trying to prevent them from becoming reinvolved and giving them the successes now so that we don't see them again, but we also have to think about the cost of having them in the justice system, um, not under an ERCS um, sentence. And those individuals that don't qualify for ERCS because they don't have the requisite um, mental health concerns or diagnoses or the right charges... um, they usurp a huge amount of time and money and resources um, coming back in and in and in like a revolving door through the justice system. I have a youth who comes in probably every two weeks on assault charges against people, but they're not severe enough for her to qualify for ERCS. Um, She has the cognitive disability. She has a bunch of other diagnoses. But the charges don't qualify. And the amount of money that Winnipeg police spend on chasing her down when she's at warrant status, finding her, bringing her into justice, the amount of money we spend on her while she's sitting in custody, it's its far more that we would spend had we been able to provide her a really comprehensive sentencing under ERCS. So long-term cost as well. And ERCS is built around appropriate resourcing. So for those kids that don't have the criminogenic footprint, don't have really serious charges, it shows us that if other systems pick up the slack, CFS, 
school systems, um, if those systems are functioning properly to make sure that they are wrapping around this child and giving them the resources that they need, that's the only way they're going to get out of the system. It's, um, it's, it's resources. It's, it's, it's not police interventions. It's not our court interventions often. It's, it's the resource building. It's providing them with a sense of community that they belong. Um, it's, a, it's, yeah, sorry. I kind of got rambly there, but that's, do you have any other specific questions, Sabrina? Um, yeah, I do have one uh, just concluding question that is a little more specific to our listeners. What message would you like to send to current and future law students as the next generation of lawyers regarding the administration of justice and more specifically the youth criminal justice system? Ooh, so young lawyers coming in? Yes. Oh, that's a tough one. Run away. No, don't run away. Um, <laughs> I was totally just about to say the same thing. Pick a different career. Go, go. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, I don't, you know, we joke about that. But at the same time, Julie, I don't know, man. Okay, so pros and co- Okay, hmm. Oh, my God. My gut says run away. Here's why my gut says run away. This area of law is so emotionally challenging and I think this is something that we we would be um, negligent if we didn't comment on um, Jody and I both have lost so many kids and um, vicarious trauma is a really 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 real thing in law and I think the most vicarious trauma rich areas other than prosecuting um like um child sex um cases like um mm-hmm. the, the most difficult area of law to practice in is youth law when it comes to vicarious trauma um so while Jody and I both like our gut goes to like oh my god run away um <laughs> We don't actually mean it, but if you do take up this area of law, you need to actively take care of yourself because you can hear in the way that Jody and I talk about this, that we care deeply about these kids and we want them to succeed. That's something that we will always have in common, despite the fact that we come from different sides of the ledger. Um, at the end of the day, every judge, every crown, every defense lawyer wants to see these kids succeed. And sometimes the measure of success for some of the kids that we meet is simply their survival. Um, so <sighs> vicarious trauma is something that young lawyers getting into this need to be very aware of. We have read the most heartbreaking pre-sentence reports. I have myself been the first disclosure for um, horrific abuse and sexual abuse um, that that you could imagine. Um, we have kids die. Um, we have kids take lives of other people. Sometimes we have kids take the lives of other kids that we know, and it's it's extremely complicated set of emotions. And um, I would really, really recommend that any lawyer going into this area of law be very open 
to the idea of uh, counseling around vicarious trauma, giving yourself a break, giving yourself time to turn off, um, meditating, whatever it might be. Um, this is a really, really tough area of the law, but it's also so, so, so rewarding if you can adjust your expectations and meet the kid where they are. If their success for the next little bit means survival, and then in six months from now, it might mean getting back into school, and then in six months from now, it might be a new goal, and then in a year from now, it might slip back to being survival. Um, if you can meet the kid where they are and challenge them to do the best that they can do, it can be so rewarding. It can be so good. Um, so I guess don't run away. <laughs> or do. <laughs> or do. It depends. depends what your trauma quota is. <laughs> Does that make sense, Jody? Do you feel that? Yeah, I would echo that. There, Hillary and I have been around long enough that we've sort of seen the whole gamut. Um, I would say eight or nine out of every ten kids that I prosecute, we get reports on all of our kids. Um, they're called pre-sentence reports, and it provides a background um, to the judge, to defense and crown, just to give an idea of what we're looking at here with the kids' background and, and what their specific challenges and upbringing and all that have been. And we also get a lot of things called forensic assessments where the youth get to meet with a doctor, a psychologist and a psychiatrist, and um, they sort of get evaluated. And we get um, told about some very personal things and their IQ levels and all these things. But in all of those reports that we read, and as I say, we read them on almost every file, inevitably there's something in there that just is so heartbreaking. Um, and we, we know that. I mean, you know that going in that unfortunately, for the most part, and there is randomly, you know, it doesn't apply. But for the most part, overall, the kids that we are dealing with have come from really, really horrific backgrounds whether they're victims of abuse, whether they've witnessed abuse, whether they've um, lost lives, whether they've been raised in, you know, abusive um, homes, whatever the case may be, um, it's tough. It's very, very tough. And even as a Crown attorney, although, you know, my role is protection of the public and, and to make sure the right outcome happens in the justice system, I also get to know some of these kids pretty well after them coming in and out of the system a lot. And even if I don't know them, reading a report about a young kid who's sitting in jail right now, who's come from a horrific background, is going to tug on anyone's heartstrings. So like Hillary says, we internally at prosecutions have done a great job about having internal um, wellness programs and things like that. And we have our own um, therapist in house. Um, but it is, it is something that you have to realize. Um will take a toll on you. Um, it was hard before I had kids. It's even tougher now that I have my own and can sometimes relay the same ages of what's happened to some of the kids I prosecute to the age of my own children. Um, it, it does, it does take a toll. So I think like Hillary says, it's important that you find something else, um, in your life that you can attach to. Hillary is extremely creative. Um, and she has a lot of creative outlets. I do not. Um, I have started, um, running that has been something I've started doing, but something other, something just for you to allow you to be able to balance the 
hardships of the job, but then go home and 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 unwind and debrief um, because it, it does weigh on you. It does weigh on you. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think I think what Hillary is saying is probably the most important if this is a career that you've chosen. And I think it's important to also say that a lot of people think that if they're interested in criminal justice, that the only avenue is law. And we have a huge amount of other areas in our justice system that are in dire need of really good, smart, hardworking advocates, um, Mm -hmm. where people often don't realize jobs are. Uh, Manitoba advocate, working in diversion services, working at victim services, all of those types of things also are in need of really strong um, individuals. Um, But if the end result is that you choose to go into law, I think uh, you have to be able to find a way to balance the trauma that you're going to witness um, mm-hmm. as a lawyer with your own well-being. Mm-hmm. Wow, awesome. Um, this is so, so great. I, I really appreciate your candor in those answers, um, especially for those of us who are interested in practicing in this area of law. Um, thank you both so much for speaking with me today. It has been Um, so insightful and I really appreciate your honesty while discussing these very real and very important topics Um, I'm sure our listeners will be just as grateful as I am for this conversation Um, thank you all for listening in and we will see you back here for the next episode of the law school show you've just been listening to the law school show You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time, on The Law School Show.